Thanks to the Brecky Show for keeping us warm under the doona. Uh, now it's time for discovery. We've climbed out from under the doona and we'll be taking a peek at the fluid dynamics of turbos and the physics of sport. Hello and welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Welcome to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Hello again and welcome to Discovery, the national science show. I'm Phil Dooley and this week we'll be getting souped up with turbos and we'll be hitting the tennis ball around the court. Before we can take a look at any of that, it's time for the weekly Discovery Science News with Jackie Pfeffer. The federal government is still refusing to rule out a nuclear waste site for the Northern Territory. Despite the high rainfall of the proposed site at Fishers Ridge, the Department of Education, Science and Training say the site would remain safe. Peter Jolly of the Territory's Environment Department is expressing concerns at the proposed site with fears nuclear waste could leak into nearby waterways and catchment areas. The Department of Education, Science and Training, however, says that the location would be engineered in a way so it was impossible that any radioactive waste could ever seep into the surrounding environment. They also added that the waste would actually be solid. Despite these assurances, Mr Jolly says overseas experience has shown that a radioactive storage facility built to the best engineering principles was found to be flawed decades later. Researchers at the University College in London claim they have developed a mathematical formula to win a woman's affection. Dr Peter Sazo says that his team developed the formula as a sequential game and have published their findings in the journal proceedings of the Royal Society B. In a methodical investigation, Dr Sazo found that there are two reliable ways to win the affection of a woman. One way is to buy her very expensive gifts. This shows her he means business and is willing to spend up big to win her. The problem with this approach, says Sazo, is that the woman may simply take his valuable prese- pres- presents and leave. A better way is to buy expensive but worthless gifts. Things like taking her to the best restaurants or nights at the theatre are ways a man can offer expensive gifts but pay nothing if his invite is turned down. The research also showed that there is a bunch of guys in London so desperate for a date that they had to commission a scientific study just to find out how to get one. New Year's Eve 2005 will see an extra second being added to what has already been an interesting year. The International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service has decided that to keep up with the rotation of the Earth, an extra second has to be added to the end of this year. Since 1978, 
global timekeepers have been adding these leap seconds so that the atomic clocks we use to keep time can stay synchronised with the Earth's rotation. Many things can affect the rotation of the Earth, such as currents in its core or even major earthquakes. In fact, the earthquake that devastated Asia last year changed the speed of our rotation by two millionths of a second. While an extra second here or there may not sound much, it can have very large effects on areas such as high-speed computing networks or astronomy, where fractions of a second can have telescopes pointing in a different direction altogether. Thanks for that fantastic news, Jackie. My uh, supervisor PhD was from University College London. Now I know where he got his techniques from. Never passed them on to me, though. You're still listening to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. We're going to go to the University of Sydney now, where it seems that old researchers never die. They just start studying things they love. I'm caught up with Rod Cross, Associate Professor Rod Cross from the University of Sydney, who, since he's retired, has become a specialist in the physics of sport. Last week we talked football with him. This week I talked to him about tennis. Now, Rod, I saw you walking around with the football last week, but you're telling me you've been out for the tennis this week. Yes, there's uh, something very interesting happened when uh, new rackets were introduced in the late uh, 70s and early 80s. These are graphite rackets that are lighter and stronger than the old wood rackets. And over a period of a few years, the game changed completely. Players were really whacking the ball as fast as they could, becoming airborne, feet off the ground. And everybody said, oh, these new rackets must be tremendously powerful. But when I actually measured them, I found they weren't a lot powerful, just a fraction more. What would hap- happening is that the rackets were getting lighter uh, and stiffer, and in order to get the speed up, players had to hit, had to swing the racket faster, and they ended up with pretty much the same power. Other people have said, well, the reason that the modern game played such a fast pace is that modern players are a lot stronger and fitter. Now, you look at the old guys, people like Lou, Lou Hode and uh, in that era, the 50s and 60s, they were training hard. They were actually strong and fit. So I figured there must be some other secret ingredient in these modern rackets that are making them uh, appear to be more powerful when they're not. And I've just figured out what it is. What is it? <laughs> Old rackets were 9 inches wide and, and 27 inches long. Yeah. And old players like me used to put one racket on top of the other to check the height of the net. Now, mm-hmm. we, we can't do that anymore because modern rackets are 10, 11, 12 inches wide. They're monsters. It's the extra inch that's allowed players to hit the ball a lot harder because they get more spin. And that's a positive feedback effect. If you can get more spin with a racket, the ball will dive down onto the court rapidly as soon as it passes over the net. That means you can hit it faster without the ball sailing past the, the baseline. It'll still go in. Oh, and I've been trying to master in. that for years. <laughs> well, you've got to get the technique right, of course. But so it's the extra length that helps you do this? No, no, it's, it's, the, it's the width across the racket 
because in order to get spin, the racket has to move forwards into the ball and upwards, uh, grabs hold of the back of the ball and spins it around so that the ball acquires top spin. So does it actually like roll it across the width of the racket? Is that what you're saying? Giving them that extra inch has done two things. First of all, the ball can slide an extra inch, but in addition, the racket can come up more steeply and still present the same cross-section of string area to the ball as an old wood racket that was nine inches wide. Right, so they're not in any danger of missing the ball more than they would have with the old wood racket. It's not so much missing. I mean, they are, you might miss the ball, but the, profe- <laughs> the, the professionals I don't. Take offence to that. <laughs> the professionals don't, but they could, could easily click the frame. The ball could click the frame as, as the ball's coming into the onto the string set as it's going off. Oh, okay. So, what about these new wide-bodied rackets? Does that have an effect? Wide-bodied rackets is wide in the in the other direction. That's that's wide perpendicular to the string, so it could be thirty millimeters, say, wide which stiffens up the frame. You're right, there are two, two widths one has to consider here. The professionals don't like wide body frames because the ball clips the frame easily. Right. But they do like the wider overall width of the racket, the 10 inch racket rather than the 9 inch racket, because they can spin the ball faster. And because they can spin it faster, that allows them to hit it faster without the ball going out. And as soon as you hit it faster, it spins faster. <laughs> That's right, it's all one big feedback loop. Exactly. exactly. So the amount of spin, this is, this is the really interesting thing, the amount of spin with a modern racket is four or five times greater than it was in, in the days when the professionals were using wood rackets. So you just couldn't get that amount of spin with a wood racket? No, you'd clip the frame. Right. Fascinating stuff. And in addition, of course, uh, the, with a wood racket, you had to follow through in the direction that you were aiming the ball. You couldn't swing up at a steep angle. You couldn't get much spin. And that the problem there is, when the ball comes off the off the court with it comes off with top spin, it's spinning about three thousand RPM. Three thousand. That is. That is. And now that what you've got to do to return it with top spin, you've got to reverse that spin. And with an old wood racket, all you could was to stop it spinning altogether. But the professionals these days return it with 3,000 of RPM of top spin. So that, they've got to give it an extra 6,000 or so? They've got, to change, to... they've got to change the spin by 6,000. And to do that, you need a wide racket. Right. And what about the sweet spot of these big rackets? Uh, that's in the middle of the strings. That uh, certainly helps as well. Is it bigger than the wood ones? Or is that making a difference? Uh, no, a spot is a spot. It has... Uh, Anything bigger than one millimetre is not a spot, it's a blotch or something. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was the idea, they had a bigger sweet blotch, they should, you think that's the right marketing term for it? Ah, no, (laughs) see the marketing people like to say their sweet spot's bigger than everybody else's and in fact it's it's sort of bigger than the whole racket itself these days, if you you can can believe the marketing guys. The sweet spot in my mind is one that feels good when when you hit the ball and there's one spot that feels absolutely best. Mm. And that's uh, right in the middle of the strings of the modern racket. In the old wood racket, it was down closer to the handle part of the string. So maybe with the with the modern racket, it's a bit further away from the wrist, so you've got a bit more angular momentum when you hit it, a bit more torque? Uh, no, the old rackets and the new rackets are about the same length, so the players are still hitting it more or less in the same spot, but when they were using wood racket, they were missing the sweet spot, so it didn't feel so good. The racket was vibrating in their hand and their arm was vibrating. 
but that doesn't actually affect the, the momentum transfer and how hard it goes. No, it doesn't. It's uh, That's what people think, the sweet spot's where the ball comes off the fastest, but that's not true. It still comes off the same speed, but you don't feel it as much, so it just feels a lot better. Oh, there you go. I've compared lots of rackets. The stiffer the racket is, the less it bends and therefore the less it vibrates. And if you play with a wood racket now, it's just unbelievable how much our wood rackets vibrate. I can't believe that when I was a kid I could possibly play with one. <laughs> you must have had wrists of steel. <laughs> I, I, I did. I played seven days a week, so I firmed up my wrist a bit then. <laughs> Excellent work. All right, well, thanks a lot for talking to us today, Rod. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> I was catching up with Associate Professor Rod Cross there from the University of Sydney. You're still listening to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. Still to come, we're going to talk to Dr Jane Sargison about the fluid dynamics of turbos. But before then, we're going to uh, dig up a CD from the corner here, wipe the dust off it, and hope, like its namesake wine, that this band Hermitage has improved with some cellaring. Cricket are located on its front legs, just below the knee. Discovery, the radio show that tackles the big issues in science, and quite a few sub-microscopic ones as well. Discovery delves deep into what makes the world tick, bringing you the latest, greatest, and weirdest in science from around the world. We don't care if your ears are on your front legs, as long as you tune into Discovery, heard on community radio across Australia by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Next up, Taylor Bildstein catches up with Dr. Jane Sargison about the dynamics of your fully sick turbo on your hotted-up machine, bro. 
I'm Dr Jane Sargison. I'm a research fellow in the School of Engineering at the University and my main research areas are in fluid dynamics and particularly how that's applied to turbine machinery, so how it's applied to turbines, engines, jet engines and that sort of thing. Were you fascinated by engineering as a child? I didn't really know what engineering was. But when I look back now, I see the things that I was interested in were related to engineering. So I, for example, I think of all the sandcastles I built always had a dam or a moat and things around them. Um, and I used to always love playing with Lego and building things. And I even, uh, when I look back, did, did the odd design of different, different mechanical systems that I hoped would work. But it really just took me until I was... Um, partway through high school until I found out about engineering and found out that, that this um, general interest that I had actually had a name, that there was a profession that you could follow and, and do these things formally. And what are you working on at the moment? The, the main things I'm working on are a couple of projects for Hydro Tasmania. Uh, one of them's looking at improving the efficiency of uh, transporting water through the canals and pipelines for Hydro. And I'm also doing some work on uh, looking at how the turbines actually perform and looking at how you can accurately cost the, um, the price of generating power. I'm also doing some work for Rolls-Royce for the, um, the jet engines and that's looking at uh, film cooling in the, in the turbines. What's film cooling? Well, basically uh, jet engines that are used in, in aircraft in particular will operate more efficiently the hotter that you run the combustion process and the, the gases that run through the, through the turbine generating the power become hotter than the melting point of the, the metal and material that the engine's made of. So film cooling is used to put, as the name suggests, a film of cool air over the metal surface and that will protect the components from from melting basically or from being damaged by the high temperatures and the the research that I'm doing is looking at the actual shape of the holes that you use to pass the film of air out over the over the metal and those engines do they fly people around yes that's right basically gas turbines are used from uh, from the fighter jets right through to the um, commercial type airlines that we fly across to Melbourne or wherever on our holidays and Similar turbines are also used for generating electricity, so the gas turbines um, that are on the mainland, for example, are, are generally similar to those, but not quite so high performance. Do you find that other people understand your passion for engineering? Other engineers do, particularly other people involved in research. I've had some examples where people haven't been able to understand why you'd just be passionate about it. I um, had an interview for a scholarship when I was at Oxford um, at, at Jesus College and it was actually the, the principal of the college who was interviewing me for this scholarship and wanted to know why I did aerodynamics and uh, I tried to explain to them. I just found it to be a passion ever since I was about 10 years old. I was just interested in flight and um, that was about as far as I could go in answering the question and I was really hounded on that one, on uh, on thinking that I should have a more defined reason for enjoying my subject area, but I don't. It's just a passion. What would you say have been your greatest achievements? Oh, probably my seven-month-old son at the moment. But, um, in, the, in the engineering world, um, I think 
My first would probably have been um, getting a Rhodes Scholarship to study at Oxford. And I think the other was um, finishing my PhD. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And I really felt at the end of it that I looked back and I was, I was amazed at, at what I'd been able to achieve. Dr Jane Sargison, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Taylor Bildstein finding out all about turbos. 60 Second Science As hairdresser Philip McCroy watched an oil-drenched otter being rescued from the midst of an oil slick, he thought, If animal hair can trap and hold spilt oil, then why can't human hair? So McCroy tried a simple experiment. He stuffed one kilo of human hair into a pair of his wife's old stockings, forming a ring with the hosiery. Then, filling his son's wading pool with a mixture of water and motor oil, he put the hair-filled ring in the middle. The results were astounding. When the ring was removed, no visible trace of oil was left in the water. Further research, conducted by NASA, showed a similar result. Only a fraction of a percent of oil remained in the water after being passed through the hair ring. Even better, McCroy's method is cheap, costing just 50 cents for each litre of oil mopped up. Conventional methods cost up to $2.50 per litre. With tonnes of it cut every day and most of it going to landfill, human hair could prove to be the solution to mopping up oil spills. 60 Second Science Miriam Beniakar from Masada College. 60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course Problem Solving and Communication in Science. Oh yeah. At last, they've found a use for those soggy bits of hair in the bottom of the bath plug. Jackie, you've got long hair. I do. What a Maybe resource. I can donate some for <laughs> oil spills. Fantastic stuff. Now, I had a big honour this week. I heard a Nobel laureate speak at the University of Sydney, Anthony Leggett. Sorry, Sir. Professor Sir Anthony Leggett. He must us. have a really long business card to fit. Yeah, that's right. Plus all these degrees and things, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and he spoke about quantum mechanics, one of the most complicated things, and, and, and it makes many people's brains hurt, and made, made my brain hurt in second year. And uh, I'm disappointed to say that he did nothing to ease my brain ache. Really? Yeah. For You expect a Nobel laureate to really, you know, take you somewhere that you hadn't expected before, but... As a communicator, I thought he failed dismally. What was the problem? Well, basically, he he attempted to dumb it down by removing the explanations but leaving <laughs> in the equations. Now, that might work for a math student, but uh, I think for the, the vast majority of the people who were there. Um, and he uh, also got, got onto the really interesting stuff in about the last two minutes, and he probably... Could have got onto that a bit earlier and, you know, cut through some of the other stuff. Well, that's an old TV trick. You put the, um, you put the best bit on last with, the, with an advertisement at the start saying this is coming up, this is coming up, and then you, you put on just so they can keep the bums on the seats. Yeah, well, that's right. We, we were all just hanging out for the snacks afterwards, weren't we? <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, I was 
hanging out for the snacks the next night when I went to a, a discussion of kangaroo as a place on the Australian cuisine. From the, uh, from the national emblem to the dinner plate. That's right, that's right. A lot of people seem to have a problem with that, that we shouldn't eat kangaroos because they're our national emblem. Do you reckon that's a problem? No, not really. I grew up in the country and you sort of see a lot hanging around the sides of roads, so mm. <laughs> probably a more practical use. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. It's, um, there's certainly um, millions of them. I believe there's, there's still more kangaroos than people, isn't there? <laughs> there's, more, the... there's actually more kangaroos than any other species in the world. I believe. They are right. the most popular species. You're talking mammal species, I'm assuming? Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess there's probably a few more ants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in terms of, like, you know, the eastern really? greys and that. Yeah. So it's definitely not endangered. Definitely not endangered. But you've got to be very careful when you're, when you're cooking kangaroo. It's a, it's a very short um, cooking process. It's almost like doing seafood or... It must be rare, yes. Yes. To keep it tender. Very, um, Have you very ever tender. tried kangaroo? Yeah, eat it all yeah. the time. Eat it all the time. I'm married to an environmentalist, so <laughs> we we have long ago taken beef from the menu and replaced it with, with kangaroo. kangaroo. Yeah, I can I can recommend a a, a roux bolognese. Very Let's nice. Try oh, someone, though. Bolognese. Yeah, yeah, and and also a very nice uh, uh, sort of a, a Thai salad. You know, a bit of chili and some. Do you have to mince it yourself, or does the does the, the, no, the no, butcher mince it for you? Yeah, you can get it. I, I buy it from my local Colts. And uh, really. Yeah, it's cheap as, and it's very low fat. Kangaroo is naturally very low fat, mm. and, and also has what fat there is is polyunsaturated, so it's actually ah, so it's good, good for you. Mm. The good for you fats, yeah. So it's the best thing that we should be eating for sure. But what about um, exploring other national um, national animals? Like um, I don't think we go as far as koalas. Well, they are exporting possum meat. Oh, that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> and they're exporting it to New Zealand, which is pretty cheeky. Seeing Especially the- they've got millions of them over there. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of rats <laughs> over in New Zealand. Yeah. Possum merchandising's big over in New Zealand. Yes. Yeah. Well, they have eradication um, procedures and all sorts of programs over there mm. to get rid of the possums that we brought over. Yeah, but I've seen a few other bush foods around. The, the, there's bush tomatoes and wild limes and all kinds of things that have been given... British kind of names, but they're actually Australian natives. So we should definitely be looking at farming that kind of stuff as well. Mm. But surprisingly enough, none of those things were on the menu at my kangaroo uh, discussion on, on Tuesday night. So shame on you. And that's all we have time for on this week's Discovery Show. If you'd like any information about any of these stories, you can reach us at discovery at 2ser.com. Helping me out on today's show were Jackie Pepper, Taylor Bildstein and Matt Clark. This week, Discovery is produced by the marvellous Matt Clark in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Discovery is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Phil Dooley, and I expect to see you back here next week for another edition of Discovery.
so much love.